Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because. Oh, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. When I think of Goldie Hawn, I think of laughter. And it's not just that infectious giggle of hers. Goldie is a woman who's actually studied happiness. America fell in love with her on the classic 60s TV show, Rowan and Martin's Laughing. She went on to appear in Hollywood hits, including Shampoo, Private Benjamin, and The First Wives Club. When she was just 24 years old, she won an Oscar for her role in Cactus Flower. But acting was actually not Goldie's first passion. She wanted to grow up and be like her mother. She wanted to get married, open a dance school, raise a family, a nice traditional life. But that did not happen. Her love of dance landed Goldie a job performing in a chorus line. An agent spotted her and before she knew it, her life took off in a whole new direction. She became a sought after actress, a producer, and a powerful force in the entertainment business. She and Kurt Russell have been a couple now for nearly 30 years, and her children, Kate, Oliver, and Wyatt, have followed their mother's footsteps into show business. As Goldie said, her life's intention was to be happy. And how she continues to live that intention is something we can all learn from. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Goldie Hawn. I grew up on a dead-end street in Tacoma Park, Maryland, where we knew everybody on the block, and anybody who drove in was like a big event. Somebody's on our street. Who is it? So I lived and grew up in a very simple way. I grew up in half a house, meaning a duplex. To me, it was the biggest house in the world. I had a backyard and lots of friends, and I lived a really kind of normal, simple life. My dad was a uh, very eccentric musician, very funny. He was incredibly creative. He would find things on the street, and he would create things out of them. He said, look what I made. I made a cabinet out of these things that people just threw away. So he was kind of a scavenger. My mother ran dancing schools, and it was the dancing school that I went to. So she took me in to the dancing school that she was running, and I was three years old when I took my first ballet class. Dancing was the most extraordinary experience of my life. I didn't know it was going to be. I just knew that it was part of my life because I danced three times a week from the age of three. It was just incorporated into my life after school, recitals, performances. It was the very thing that I knew I was going to do when I grew up, and my mother knew that I was going to do, and my dad knew. 
So, you know, I'd bring home a C in school, but they weren't too worried about it because they knew basically what my vocation was going to be from early on. Being a child, we're so literal. I was in third grade, and I had a third grade teacher, Mrs. Toomey, and we were doing a talent show at school. And I was going to just dance and arabesque and jump and soje and twirl, and I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just dance, you know? It's like I had no routine. Mrs. Toomey said, now, boys and girls, I want everybody to be perfect. And I looked at her and I went, oh, Mrs. Toomey, I'm not perfect. Then my brain just went into overdrive. I just lost it. I went, oh, I'm never doing the show. I'm not doing the show. It's not going to happen. So mom comes up and she said, what is wrong with you? I said, mom, I'm not perfect. And my mother said to me, well, what do you mean perfect? I said, Mrs. Toomey said that I had to be perfect and I'm not perfect. Which point Mrs. Toomey came in and then my mother said to her, basically, what the hell are you talking about? You have to be perfect. We can't tell our children they have to be perfect because you know what? Nothing's perfect. And I remember I got up on stage. I was so nervous because I still had this idea that perfection was something that I had to achieve. But when I played the music, I forgot everything. And I danced and I had the best time. And my mother was sitting out there giving me the thumbs up. And I knew that I could fly to the beat, to the tone, to what I heard of my own drum. And I wanted to feel the expression of the music freely, unencumbered. And I looked down and Mrs. Toomey was sobbing. <laughs> she was sobbing, she was crying. Even today, I don't like anything perfect. I don't like, again, it's sort of being encaged with a concept, which is like perfect hair or perfect this or a perfect speech or a perfect thing. Living in fear of not being perfect is something that actually can destabilize us and uh, narrow our scope of life experience. The idea that we walk around with the idea of perfection, nothing is perfect. Third grade was not being perfect, and uh, what I learned from that, and then sixth grade was a life changer. They told us that we were gonna see an, an agricultural film, and no, a film, and I said, oh, it's gonna be about, you know, farming and whatever, and it was so cool because we got to go downstairs, and it was time we didn't have to do math or English or whatever, and we got a break. So I went down there and they had the old 16 millimeter and the lights went out. What came on the screen was this horrific weird thing, pan destruction and bombs going off and sounds. Then this whole thing panned, you know, mothers and blood coming out and fathers and babies running and calling mommy. And I looked at this and I went, what am I looking at? I, my entire body started to shake and said, this is what will happen when there's an enemy attack. In my little world, it meant certain death. I was hit with the idea of mortality so hard, and I started shaking because clearly I knew I'd never grow up to kiss a boy. I would never have a family. I would never be able to fulfill a life that I had dreamed of having. Years after that, every time an air raid siren would go off, I couldn't go to school. I would find out when we'd have an air raid drill. I'd find out when it was. I could not go to school. I couldn't hear the sound. I would call the fire department and I would say, excuse me, are we having an enemy attack? 
And they'd say, no. Or the operator, I'd call the operator, I'd just press zero and I'd say, excuse me, I'm wondering if this is an enemy attack. And the operator would laugh and say, no. This is the anxiety that I went through. And it, it was that time when I was in tremendous fear in death. And so I started reading the Bible and I started reading the Psalms. And I came across a Psalm that I love, the 23rd Psalm. And I loved it. And it brought me so much peace. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff will comfort me. That concept of God was so powerful for me that it really helped me sort of be in a place of safety. And I think it was the beginning of my deep connection to spirit and my deep connection to religion. Not one religion, many. Understanding the roots of religion, understanding the need to believe. This is something that I have found is a great, I guess it's the deepest part of my soul. And maybe it's where my joy comes from. My father taught me so much. We used to go fishing together and it was so much fun, me and my dad. We went to the Chesapeake Bay. We lived in Maryland. We'd go there and we'd have our fishing rods and he'd have the tackle and I'd be doing the worms or the whatever I had to do. And then he said, go, I want you to look out over this water. And I want you to remember something. When you start feeling a little too big for your bridges, I want you to feel how small we are and how much a part of everything we are. I think it's really important that you remember it. So you always have your feet on the ground and there's always a sense of reality around you. I'd never forgotten that and what was so interesting is, is that it was very prophetic because I was a young girl and little did I know that these principles of staying with your feet on the ground without having extreme expectations of what you believe or what you want to happen for you is important to be grounded and to stay focused on the present and not inflate yourself to feel that you are truly any different than anybody else because we're not. We all have gifts. We all have the ability to put forth the best of ourselves in our day. That to me is what my father gave me, a sense of, of reality and truth and my place in the world. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I never thought I was funny. I guess I thought I was odd and different. And I was a performer, so I was able to perform something on stage as a dancer. I think the the glimpse of me like going, oh, they're laughing, was my first experience when I did Romeo and Juliet. And it was like, oh my God, I can't believe I got this role of Juliet. It was my very first job after high school. And I was playing Juliet. This is a drama. I mean, come on, Romeo and Juliet's tragedy. I wanted this role so bad, so I had the intention 
of going out there and saying, I am going to learn every line. I, I want to play Juliet. I was driven to play her. I worked toward it. I memorized everything. Cut to, I'm now doing the show. And I do one thing. She's impatient with the nurse in this scene. And she puts her hand like this. Oh, well. And she kind of looks up. And the entire audience started to laugh. And I went, oh my God, they're laughing. This is a tragedy. What did I do? I did something wrong. <laughs> it's like, and yet, it was the first moment where I realized that I didn't have to do much. I just looked. I, I guess I rolled my eyes up. I, did, I had body language, whatever. What did I do to get this enormous laugh? So slowly what began to happen in terms of understanding kind of, well, when I thought I was a dramatic actress, but in terms of what talents do I have, I had no idea I was a dancer. And I was pretty good at drama. And for some reason, I kind of made people laugh. Hmm, wonder why. As things went on, I was now dancing in a chorus line. I'm dancing in the Andy Griffith special. And I am so happy. I called dad, I called mom. I said, can you believe this? And on this show, we were in the studio. I was dancing and a man comes up to me and he says, excuse me, do you have representation? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, do you have an agent? And I said, no. He said, really? Well, I'm from the William Morris Agency, and uh, my name is Art Simon. I'm representing the show here. I'd like to see you. And I thought, okay. I took his card, I put it right in here, in my leotard, and I started dancing again. Five, six, seven, eight, ba-dum, ba -dum, ba -dum, and I was gone. The show's over, I get a phone call. Excuse me, um, we're waiting for you. I mean, weren't you supposed to come in at 11 o'clock? I thought the time was set and da-da for Art Simon to meet you at William Morris. And I went, oh my God. I hustled over to William Morris. I'm going, oh my God, what is happening here? Sit with agents, they're all sitting at me, God love them, looking at me like, y'all? And I'm sitting there going, yeah, why am I here? And this man said, I have a hunch about this girl and I really think that something's going to happen with her and I'd like to represent her. And they all looked at me and went, well, she's too old for this and too young for that and too bop-a-deep and bop-bop-a-dup. I could write a Broadway number about that. And it turns out that they said, whatever you want to do, you feel that strongly about her. Now my life starts to change because I'm starting to feel uncertain. You know, I had a life plan. My life plan was I was going to get married, open a dancing school, and be happy. So this was my life plan. My hope for the future was very clear. And because I was very traditional and I wanted very traditional things and I had very traditional values, that I figured I would dabble over here and I'd make that happen. Oh, I can control everything, right? And in doing so, I was so concretized in my dreams of having a good life, a healthy life, a perfect life, a storybook life, that I became depressed. I felt like I was detached, detached from everything I knew. I was afraid I was never going home again. I was starting to realize that I was moving quickly in a completely different direction. So I then saw a doctor. I wanted help. I started to go back from the beginning to remember all of the aspects of my life with all of the fears. Remembering all these little things that you think just don't matter. You think, oh, well, I dealt with that. Oh, I dealt with that. 
And I realized that I didn't really deal with it. I didn't really go back and look at it. So in a way, I went on one side of the river. I really dove in the river. My psyche, my being, my intellectualizing, my emotions, my uncertainty, I dove in the river. I didn't find a bridge to go over it. I didn't say, well, I'm going to do a couple quick therapy sessions and then I'm going to be cool. I went for nine years. It was the most extraordinary experience of my life. When you talk about destiny, you talk about best laid plans. You talk about planning so far into the future that you actually don't leave room for chance or, or those left or right hand turns that create and inform your life and who you are. You really encage yourself. You, you close the door on potentiality. My mom sent me a letter once and she said to me, Goldie, remember one thing. The casting couch might be able to put you in front of a camera, but it's the people and your talent that will keep you there. So hearkening back to work ethic, personal ethics, it'll take you long and far. It did me. I was living alone in New York. I was 19. And this fellow stops me in the street and he says, you got to meet Al Cap. You look exactly like one of the characters that Al Cap has just created. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, he's doing this show. It's for NBC and, you know, everybody's going to see it and it's going to be on television. You'd be so great for this part. And I'm thinking, oh, Al Cap, he was a great cartoonist. He was like, you know, the little Abner. Oh, my God. I've got to meet this guy, right? So the fellow that took me there said, you got to be really nice to him. And I said, well, of course I'm really nice to him, you know. So I go up there and I go to this big Park Avenue apartment. I'd never been in so much wealth. And I go up, and the butler's there, and he sits me down. He said, Mr. Cap isn't in yet. And now I'm waiting for Mr. Cap to, like, fly through the door. He's late. And I'm sitting there going, what am I doing? This is so weird. I mean, I'm in this place. I'm having this audition with Al Cap, you know, who wrote this thing. And, but anyway, so then he thunders through the door, and he's limping through the door, and he has this, I guess, one leg. He had, like, a wooden leg or something. I thought, oh, that's dull, you know, that's sad. So he said, well, I'm going to slip into something more comfortable. And something went off my brain like, bing, more comfortable. Okay, well, I guess that means he's going to go in and take off his raincoat. And, you know, it's raining outside and, you know, do that. So he comes in in a dressing gown and he sits down on the couch. I'm thinking, this isn't, this isn't looking too good. I then told him about my background. Oh, and I told him about my white picket fence. I told him that I wanted to, like, marry a Jewish dentist and that my mom and my dad and my dad was a musician and, you know, uh, wholesome girl, wholesome girl, wholesome girl, not anybody, like, whatever, because I was getting a really bad vibe. Then he says to me, well, read the script. So I'm reading the script of this little Abner script, and he said, you don't have to yell so loud. This is television. Oh, he sucked me in right there. Like, oh, this is pretty, like, on the up and up. And then he said to me, would you go over there now, Goldie, and would you, uh, I just want to see your legs. And I went, I'm doing this thing going, this is weird. So doing as I was told, being the lovely dancer that takes direction and choreography, I did. And so I lifted my skirt up just a little bit. In these days, no mini skirts were really in then. I had on a, a sheath. It was sort of the middle of my knee, which was at that point sort of okay. And I lifted it up. He said, higher. 
and he lifted it up. He said, higher. And I looked at him and I said, Mr. Cap, that's all the higher I can go. And he said, well, come on over here, Goldie, sit down. And which point I sat down and he opened up his dressing gown. And I looked at it and you know what it is, it was scary. And I, I literally, oh, I said, Mr. Cap, ah, I will never get a job like this. And he said to me, oh, I've had them all. And I said, well, it doesn't matter, but I'll never do this. He said, well, you're never going to get anywhere in this business. You should go home and marry a Jewish dentist. And I started to cry and I said, well, maybe I will. And I ran out crying. And it was really, really terrible. That was a, not a good day. Finally, the show came out, years later, and I was able to send Mr. Cap a telegram. I was doing laughing at the time, so I was pretty established. And I sent him back a telegram, and I said, well, congratulations, and I guess I didn't have to marry a Jewish dentist after all. <laughs> Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see, so... No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Success came fast for Goldie. In fact, the first time she starred in a movie, Cactus Flower, she won an Academy Award. She was just 24 at the time, but America had already fallen in love with her as the bubbly blonde funny girl on Laugh-In. Lappin was sort of this show that, that came out of nowhere. I get a call, my agent, my new agent, said that, you know, he wants George Slaughter, who's doing this show called Laugh-In, wants to audition you or to meet you. And I went, okay, you know, that's fine. So I learned a little about this show. Now, first of all, I'm not a stand-up comic. Secondly, I was not a, a performer in clubs or anything. I didn't do that stuff. So I didn't really know what they needed me for, like what I was supposed to do. But I went into his office and I sat in this huge red leather chair, which I always remember. It's like I felt so little in this chair. This chair just encompassed me. So I sat in front of him. He said, what do you do? And I said, um, I'm a dancer. I mean, that's really who I am. And he laughed and he went, oh, well, that's interesting. He asked me about my family and about my dogs and about my thing. And I'm having this conversation with this guy who was darling. I just loved him. But I'm going, what the hell am I doing here? I mean, I don't have like a like a comedy routine, because I'm not really a comedian, I said. You know, I can be funny, I guess, but, you know, it's not. So I don't know where I fit in, in the, the show, but, and he looked at me and he, well, I'll be the judge of that. And I remember walking down into the rehearsal hall at NBC going, you know, it was shaking. And we go on the set, and I am now looking at cards. In those days, there was no teleprompter, it was cards. I mean, these guys literally had a job. They printed out every word we had to say. And they'd take them under the camera and we'd be, I'd be looking. But I'm a little dyslexic, which I later found out. So now I'm reading the cards. And so I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Dan and Dick the, in, the, in, in the news. No, wait, let me do it again. I'm sorry. And I started laughing. 
And George Slaughter, who was up in the booth, said, keep going. And I said, but I messed up. And he said, that's what I like, keep going. And this is kind of the way it all started, which is a little dyslexic, laughing at my own stupidity, having to move forward, feeling totally ridiculous, and then having fun with it. It ended up becoming who, who that little character was, that little dummy, that one that looked up adoringly. There, in a sense, the character was born through a modicum of truth and reality and a piece of my character. Truly, it was a piece of me. One thing led to the other. Yes, I'd like to meet you led to, yes, I'll do three shows, led to, you know, the beginning of uh, an amazing career. So we never know what's going to happen, ever. That first, first experience I had making a movie, I guess maybe that's just the way I am, but it, it just felt, and maybe it's the way I was raised. Oh, great, I got a job. Oh, boy. I get to work with Ingrid Bergman. That is so great. And Walter Matthau, wow. And then I was nominated for an Academy Award for this movie. To myself, I thought, well, it's really nice to be nominated for sure, but I was all these wonderful, incredible actresses, Maggie Smith and blah, 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 Goldie Hawn and Cactus Flower. I mean, to me, it was just ludicrous. So I went and did another movie in London, and I was very busy. I forgot the Academy Awards were on. I mean, I literally forgot. I went to bed that night. I had to get up the next morning. I was working. I get a phone call in the middle of the night, and they went, you got it. And I'm asleep, and I went, I got what? And they said, you got the Academy Award. You won. And I went, what? I won? I won an Academy Award? Oh, my God. I said, I forgot it was on television last night. And the next day was fun and great and congratulations and everything else and back to work. It's wonderful to be given an award. But I think because of the way I was raised, my father was like, you know, don't, don't get too big for your britches. Calm down, slow down. All right, Miss Goldie, that's enough. That informed a lot of the way I look at an award. It's a great thing to get looked and recognized for something that you've done. But it's a moment in time. Living off of those accolades and making that become the sum total and the part of your importance in life, or even your purpose in life, defining who you are. Those awards are never, they're wonderful. They're never going to define who you are. I define myself by my ability to give. I define myself by my ability to understand. I define myself by my ethics and by my truth. These are the things that inform who I am, other than exterior moments that come and ebb and flow. People see what they want to see. During Laugh-In, people would say to me, aren't you like the dumb blonde in working against women's liberation? And I was, you know, 20, 21, and I thought, I've always felt liberated. I don't know what you mean, women's liberation. And it, it kind of dawned on me then that this was an issue. So years later, I do a film called Private Benjamin. And I was so grateful for this film and asked if I would be in it. And we decided to co-produce it together. And I thought it would be this amazing experience. We went off and we made the movie and we, oh, were, we were all just this beautiful team. We had so much fun. 
movie comes out and it's a big honking hit. And it's one of the few hits that a woman was at the head of the, above the title. And it was like, oh my God, Goldie Hawn brings in blah, blah, blah to the box office and Private Benjamin. And, and it was like a big deal. So I was like, oh my God. Then they wanted to do a cover of Newsweek and the big uh, producers suddenly dumb as a fox and, you know, Goldie from Laughing, who was like, Bubblehead is suddenly like in control. And, you know, and meanwhile, I produced it, but so did everybody else. I mean, frankly, I wasn't the only producer on the movie, but I guess being the movie star and the whatever. So I got all this hoopla around it. It changed things for me because I realized that there was a modicum of prejudice against, suddenly it was like, oh, Goldie wants to do things her way. Oh, she has a company of her own. Uh, directors would think, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with some woman in control. And I thought, I'm the easiest person to get along with. And I'm not a mogul. I'm not somebody who wants to do things my way. I'm smart. I have ideas. But where did I ever get that reputation? So I wasn't really being asked to do other kinds of roles, really, working with sort of the what I considered the really big directors. And now you're sitting in a position going, God, is this worth it? I mean, am I like losing out on things by suddenly being the big Hollywood producer? It was a double-edged sword, really, becoming successful in that other field. I dealt with the difficulties of being a female, basically, at that time, being one of the very few that was actually an active producer. Isn't it a delight to see someone whose biggest goal in life is to be happy? And Goldie's achieved that happiness by embracing the unexpected, keeping her feet planted firmly on the ground, and letting her true self shine. We see that every time we see her. Well, after two failed marriages, Goldie found happiness in her long-term relationship with actor Kurt Russell. And when she talks about him, you can just see the joy on her face. But I think about my life and my marriages. They didn't end up all that great. Vows are made, vows are broken. Promises are made, promises are broken. Kind of way life is, in a way. It does happen. And eventually something might be the straw that breaks the camel's back. So I kind of was not thinking about marriage. Because love is love. Promises are promises. And devotion is part of it. What does a piece of paper have to do with it for me, not for somebody else? I met Kurt, and we fell in love, and we both agreed. Is there a reason to get married? We had kids and our kids were together. We had a ball. And I thought, well, there's no reason for a ceremony. I wake up every morning and I really can make a choice. I don't feel trapped. I can choose to love him or not. I can choose to be there or not. And I like that. I like having someone in my life that I have to be responsible to, to be the best I can be for, so he feels the same way about me. I've never met anybody with so much zest for life. I think Kurt, he's such a joy. And a pain in the rear end sometimes. <laughs> That's what makes horse races. As a mother, you experience different things at different times with your children. One of my favorite stories is Demeter and Persephone. It's an old myth. It's how the seasons were actually created. 
And it's a story of a mother and daughter and how the mother was everything to that daughter. The daughter looked at her and the sun rose and set on her and they had so much fun together and the mother was powerful and the mother felt her power. And then the child becomes a teenager. The daughter says, I'm going down to the underworld, mom. I've been called by Hades and he's bringing me down under. And she says, don't go. Don't go away from me. I need you. If you go away from me, what do I have? You'll take my youth with you. You'll take my joy with you. You'll take my purpose with you. I'll be weak. And she went anyway, because she had to become a woman. And she had to leave the clutches of her mother in order to define who she is, to find out who she is, to individuate, to become whole. And so the mother grieved and she cried and it was winter and it was fall and it was winter again and she created fall again and spring and summer didn't exist because of her bereavement and the loss of her child. So she made a deal with Hades and she said, if I can have my daughter back for half of the year, I will create summer and spring. So her daughter came back greater, more formed, and their relationship moved on in a different relationship. But it brought the mother great joy and spring and summer were created. Now, what this is, is an example of how we as mothers have to be able to not just pass a baton, but to be able to give free reign for your daughter to grow, to make mistakes. Doesn't mean they're not watched, but it means that they're honored. And you watch them individuate. You watch them fight you. And that's what being a mother is also, is witnessing. Just be there. You don't always have to power over. And certainly in my life, having a daughter follow in mom's footsteps is not easy. She said, hey, I'm my own person, and damn it, we made sure she was. I believe that this is one of the most important things as a parent you can do, which is to let go in times so these children can formulate their own identity. You live your life, you go through ups and downs, you learn, and hopefully you grow. The growth part of it is the most exciting part for me. Because when I reached the age of 50 or older, I wondered what else I was going to do with my life. I didn't think I was going to be doing acting all my life. I just thought life has to have more than that. But we need to make it happen. How am I going to give back the things I've learned, the, the, the worlds I've traveled, the knowledge I've acquired, the understanding that I have about the depth of well-being and understanding how we can actually feel that. And so what matters to me is giving back. So just because you get older doesn't mean things stop. It's when you stop. It's when your wonder stops. It's when your innovation stops. It's when your creativity stops and you allow yourself to go asunder. The beauty of getting older is the surprise of what else you can do to make the world a better place with the wisdom that you've accrued over those years. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. 
You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. There's a moment you realize you're ready for what's next in your career. Maybe it's when you're trying a new scone recipe and think, I could open a cafe. Or maybe you're helping a coworker and say, I could teach a course on this. Whatever your moment is, it's never too early to plan for a career that lives longer. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. For skills training, resume tips, and job listings, visit aarp.org work.